Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michelle Frederick, and I'm excited to welcome you to Putting Down Roots, a program highlighting creative individuals and organizations bringing something unique to Mendocino County through the arts, environmental practices, education, and beyond. Last month, we discussed botanicals and plants with Sage Anderson, owner of Ficus and Fern in Fort Bragg, Carly Daniel of Wavelength Farm in Manchester, and Molly Barker, Executive Director of the Mendocino Coast Botanical Gardens in Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. If you missed that show, you can find it on Spotify under KZYX Public Affairs or on the Jukebox page at kzyx.org. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking about the wonderful world of mushrooms mm -hmm. with my guests. Lama and Matthew of the Forest People in Boonville, and Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, who is a clinical psychologist, radio host, and author. Although it's a little early for mushroom hunting season here in Mendocino County, we're going to be talking about growing mushrooms, their small environmental footprint, and how they're being used not only as a food, but also as a medicine. I'm very excited for our show today, and I'm going to kick things off with my first guests, Lama and Matthew of the Forest People in Boonville. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having us on. We're very excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, can you talk briefly about how you came to be in Mendocino County? Yeah, Matthew and I met in Boise, Idaho, where our daughter was born, and we had dabbled in growing mushrooms there. Um, and after our daughter was born, we decided uh, we wanted to be living more of a land-based lifestyle in community. And we explored this area and fell in love with um, an intentional community uh, called Emerald Earth that's in Boonville. We lived there for about a year and just wasn't a good fit for us, but we love the area so much and the people here that we decided to stay. Wonderful. And so I know that Matthew has a background in horticulture and that you were already growing mushrooms in Boise. Can you talk a little bit about how, what led you to, to become interested in growing mushrooms? Yeah, well, for me, um, I read the book Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets way back when. And, uh, was really fascinated with the structure of the mycelium and how it mimics the structure of the cosmos and uh, the neuron web in our brains. And it really caught me um, and made me want to learn more about mushrooms. And it's just incredible how much a part of the ecosystem they are and <clears throat> they feed the forest uh, and really connect all life. Yeah, for myself, I was I was living in a little permaculture in in next to Boise called Windy Hill Farm, and we were all trying to brainstorm ways how to utilize our tiny little plot of land. And I started researching uh, mushroom farming because you can you can grow mushrooms in a very small space and get quite a bit of output. So I started dabbling with a little bit of oyster mushrooms in a tiny uh, humidification chamber and you know, didn't, didn't really do much there, but eventually, um, met Lama and she had an interest in mushrooms. And so with that really brought us together. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of when we built our first little mushroom chamber out of a coop house and, you know, R45 insulation and <laughs> had to keep it real warm during the winters that are pretty rough there. And, but anyways, yeah, it's, um, 
that's kind of where my journey started. So you both decided together to form the Forest People, and you're currently located in Boonville. And your motto is radically sustainable mushroom cultivation. Can you tell our listeners more about your business and the process that you use to grow your mushrooms? Yeah, we grow indoors and we have a, a model of cultivation where we use organic straw and we create these vertical hanging columns or pillars in a customized um, shipping container that is totally built for oyster mushroom production. Matthew's really been amazing in his research and ingenuity um, developing this these mushroom houses that we have. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. We pasteurize the straw and then introduce the mushroom mycelium of the mushrooms that we want to grow into it and let them incubate. So the mycelium eats the straw. And after about a month, they start to fruit mushrooms. Uh, And they'll continue to fruit mushrooms for a few weeks. And then they get moved along and we create more more of these vertical uh, columns every week to put in our mushroom house. And you're specifically mainly growing oyster mushrooms, but you work with um, a couple mm-hmm. different varieties, correct? Yeah, we grow several different varieties of oyster mushrooms. Uh, this year, we just started growing king trumpets, which is the same genus as an oyster mushroom, but different species, has a different form and a different flavor and texture. They're really amazing, but it's, they don't like the warm weather, so <clears throat> that's, we'll, we won't see those again until the fall. Yeah, it's really fun. There's a there's a cornucopia of different varieties of oysters. We you know we we grow pink oysters that have this very striking pink sort of lobster color. Um, we grow some blues. We grow some elms that are white, and there's also the yellow mushrooms. So it's just um, it's really interesting how many different colors this genus expresses. Yeah, and each color is a different flavor. Um, it's really amazing. We also partner with our neighbors at Natural Products of Boonville. Um, they grow lion's mane mushrooms, um, which are really incredible for brain health and nerve health, uh, and also shiitakes. And so at our farmer's market table, we're able to um, offer our customers a variety of different mushrooms, not just the oysters we grow. That's wonderful, and I love that you're growing them with the intention, not just of them being used for culinary purposes, but also health purposes as well and educating people about that. Oh yeah. Mushrooms are amazing. They have so many health benefits. Each mushroom has its own, um, you know, character trait of uh, medicinal value. Um, For example, oyster mushrooms are really known for uh, lowering bad cholesterol in the body But just like um, every other quote-unquote gourmet mushrooms, um, they also are anti-inflammatory and have anti-cancer properties, among other things. Yeah, they even uh, recently discovered a compound in the oyster mushroom that helps, uh, that's similar to the compound in Tamiflu. So uh, oyster mushrooms are good for uh, respiratory health as well. You know, we find that a lot of the mushrooms medicinal benefits cross over. The more we look into them, it's it's pretty amazing. 
One of the benefits of growing mushrooms is the ability to grow a large quantity in a small space and also use, I know, like, for example, the straw that you use is considered a waste material. Can you talk more about the environmental benefits of growing mushrooms? Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, Lemma. Oh, I was just going to say it's really incredible. And, and it's one of the really exciting things about growing mushrooms is in our two shipping containers that have been customized for growing oyster mushrooms, we have the potential to grow over 5,000 pounds a year. Uh, we're cr currently growing about 100 pounds a week. Um, and it's for that small of a footprint, that little amount of water, um, it's really a technology that should be applied all over the world to feed hungry bellies. Yeah. The, the ability of the oyster mushroom to convert uh, ligno, uh, lignocellulose waste into edible food is, is basically, it's a one-to-one -one conversion, um, which is higher than fish and, you know, higher than, than other kinds of, of farmed food products. So basically, you know, for every pound of dry straw, you get one pound of mushroom out of it. So it's a, it's a good good deal to have with Gaia, you know. <laughs> I like to consider them little tiny cows converting the grass into something edible. We don't need cows. We can use mushrooms. And also the straw that you're using, it's organic and you're sourcing it from local farmers, correct? We have in the past uh, sourced from the Mendocino Grain Project, and we've bought a lot of their straw. Um, it's not enough. Uh, we use more than what they grow currently, or um, they may have upscaled, I'm not sure. But uh, we do get organic rice straw from the Central Valley a couple hours away. It's just on the other side of Lake County. Um, and we bring that in a few times a year and grow our mushrooms on that. Lama, you had talked a little bit with me previously about the, the process and the bags, which afterwards the bags that you grow the mushrooms in are then used for compost and i know that you use a um a method which is called the the johnson sue method can you talk a little about a bit about the composting method that you use yeah i would i would love to mention yeah the johnson sue bioreactor is a a process of aerobic composting where we we load our spent substrate into these vertical containers that have uh, air passageways running through them and it takes a full year for the composting process to finish and you know it's like a 60 66 percent reduction in labor because we never have to turn the compost uh, there's a 90 percent reduction in water usage to to make this kind of compost um, and the benefits of it are pretty fantastic. Uh, Dr. Johnson over at uh, Chico State and his wife developed the process through um, trying to desalinate cow manure. And they discovered that you could use all kinds of different um, materials to make these compost piles. And the benefits are legion. I mean, we're talking uh, massive carbon sequestration so that we're we're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the biology of the soil, huge increases in crop yield. The, uh, they've discovered that the nutrient availability after one application um, skyrockets in the soil. You know, we're talking like a 70% increase in the availability of phosphorus and 
Um, lots of water retention increases, but the, the main aspect of this compost is that it, uh, it increases the bio, the diversity of the biology in your soil. So all these relationships with fungus and bacteria and the plants, they start working together synergistically such that, you know, you can literally eliminate the use of all fertilizer, organic fertilizers, uh, obviously no pesticides, no herbicides. And, um, you know, Dr. Johnson is, is saying essentially that if, if somewhere between 17 and 26% of global agriculture switched over to using this kind of compost, we could remove all the anthropogenic CO2 in less than 10 years. So we're just excited to be a part of that because um, it, it is a new paradigm in agriculture and uh, they have fun, their research has a lot of funding from the USDA and it's kind of just right now, just people, scientists are trying to get the word out, you know, and so we're excited to be making this kind of compost. And is the compost specifically based around working with fungi? Yeah, it is. Um, we use we use red wigglers worms in the process as well. And so their guts are, are loaded with all these different fungi and bacteria. And they break down the the material, the material down into this stuff that just kind of looks like chocolate cake. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I was just asking in terms of um, because it, it it sounds like it's perfect for the type of work that you're doing because you're working with mushrooms, but maybe for someone who isn't working specifically with mushrooms, it's still a method that they could use. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can use yard waste. You can use leaves. Um, you could even just use straw bales. Um, it's it's really different than conventional composting processes where you have to worry about the getting a certain amount of brown matter and green matter. Um, and this, this system can use just all brown matter. And, um, you know, where it's, it essentially becomes like an inoculant for the soil. They've, they've found that you could use one pound of this, this compost mixed with about 50 pounds of seed. And you can, you can sow up to two acres of these inoculated seeds and um, it's really potent. So you're basically just regenerating the biological diversity of the soil, which is, has been depleted throughout these last 150 years from just so many disturbances of our, our current paradigm, you know? And coming back to the mushrooms that you that you all grow, where can our listeners uh, purchase these mushrooms or find them? We sell our mushrooms at the Boonville Farmer's Market every Friday from 4 to 6. The Saturday Farmer's Market in Ukiah from 9 to noon and at Ukiah Natural Foods Co-op. Uh, and then on the coast in Mendocino, you can get them at Corners of the Mouth. Wonderful. And Lama, you actually won the first prize in Startup mm -hmm. Mendocino for your mushroom jerky. Can you tell us about a little bit about the inspiration behind creating this product? Yeah. Um, uh, West Business Center had a competition for um, new entrepreneurs and they, it was like a pitch competition. So if you think of like a Ted talk, 
Um, so I joined, really excited uh, to present um, kind of a business model for the forest people making a mushroom jerky. And I ended up winning, which was incredible for our business, for publicity and for um, the money, which, you know, as if you're starting a business from the ground up and, you know, we didn't have a lot to go on, we were kind of um, building our business slowly. The $10,000 prize was incredible for us. It really allowed us to stabilize our business. Um, and as far as the mushroom jerky goes, uh, oyster mushrooms have a fairly short shelf life and need refrigeration. Uh, but after a few days, I don't like selling them because of our quality standards. So we needed to figure out something to do with them where we weren't just dumping them in the compost. Um, I know this is something that a lot of farms deal with, um, and some farms turn their leftovers into value-added products. And so we thought of mushroom jerky. It's actually an idea from a friend a few years back, and um, it allows us to create a shelf-stable product that's also ready to eat. So you can't eat dried mushrooms that haven't been cooked, but if you cook them first and then dehydrate them, um, they're delicious, they're high protein, they're nutritious, awesome snack all around. I think that's such a great idea and such a wonderful alternative, you know, to, to meat jerky and another wonderful way to use mushrooms. Yeah. And, you know, um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get the product to market yet. Um, there's been quite a few roadblocks, um, you know, COVID being one of them, but, uh, Really, this is just Matthew and I trying to run this whole show, and we've been so busy with um, selling fresh mushrooms and, you know, farming that um, we haven't had time to really dedicate to creating a whole new product line, but hopefully that'll come soon. Um, and I'd also like to mention, you know, I mentioned how Startup Mendocino, that prize was really helpful to us in getting our business stabilized. I also want to shout out to the Good Farm Fund. We were the recipient of um, several grants the past few years that also really helped us grow and stabilize our business. And we wouldn't be here today without them. Yeah, heartfelt thank you to the to the big community of the Good Farm Fund and, and all the people that contribute to that because they're really propping up our local uh food system. It's, it's pretty amazing thing. Yeah. And it's so important. Um, these grants for small businesses and entrepreneurs to, to help get your ideas off the ground and, you know, create these products and, and introduce new ideas. So it's wonderful that you were able to receive those grants kind of off of that. Do you have any plans for the future in terms of growing the forest people? I know that you have the Human Sustainability Project, which deals with biointensive farming and the compost that you use. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a little, um, you know, concept that we have going. Just this idea, um, utilizing the, the biointensive farming system, which is... Uh, basically just a way to maximize your yield in a really small space. Um, and you can increase the biodiversity of, of your area. And, you know, you're really increasing the fertility of your soil. And this is, this is basically a 
long-term regenerative farming system. And it's, they've done a lot of work at, at the Grow Biointensive Research Center in Willits. And um, Matt Druno is over in Fort Bragg doing research on biointensive farming. We have a, a serious gem in the area. Um, so we, we have this sort of long-term vision of getting on a small piece of land and basically creating a closed loop system that includes mushrooms. Um, and so, yeah, that would, that would kind of be the dream was, you know, get on a small piece of land and create a demonstration of an actual true closed loop system. Because as it stands now, we, we don't really have an example of this. We have people that are excited to go to Mars, yet we still haven't solved how to grow food in a closed loop system within our own biosphere. So I think we have a lot of work to do here on Earth before we start, you know, colonizing other planets. <laughs> Absolutely. And the work that you guys are doing is really important. I mean, you're not only creating a food source, but you're practicing this regenerative form of farming, which is giving back to the land and creating food for people. And I know that uh, Lama and I had talked previously about the difficulty of, especially here in, other, in Northern California, of having land, of being able, you know, it is very expensive, and being able to afford land here. And I do hope that in the future, you guys are able to secure, secure a piece of land where you are able to make this project come to life. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's... Um you know, a problem that faces all farmers, not just here in California where the land prices are so high, but um, all over. Uh, farmers tend to be undervalued. You know, we don't, we, we want cheap food. People want cheap food. <laughs> so, um, you know, no one's getting rich farming. Well, I'm really excited to have you both on. It was wonderful to speak with you. Um, is there any any other information you want to share with the listeners about the forest people or about mushrooms? I just want to say that we feel really held by our community and it's a joy to be able to provide nutrient-dense mushrooms and medicinal mushrooms to um, our county. Yeah, yeah, I want to just say thank you to the community as well because this is a this is a team effort you know without people enjoying the mushrooms then there wouldn't be mushroom farmers so it's we're very much uh interconnected you know here in this this beautiful county so yeah thanks for having us on i really appreciate it yeah it was wonderful and so excited to have you guys on the show and and also to have you here in mendocino county doing this amazing work so Thank you so much, Lemma and Matthew, for, for joining the show today. And if you'd like to learn more about the forest people, you can visit www.forestpeoplemushrooms.com and on, on Instagram uh, at forest people, at forest underscore people underscore mushrooms. You can go check out the work that they're doing. And for folks who are tuning in now, you're listening to Putting Down Roots on KZYX. And I'm talking about mushrooms with my guests, Lama and Matthew, owners of the Forest People in Boonville, and Dr. Richard Miller, clinical psychologist, radio host, and author of the book, Psychedelic Medicine. So now I'm going to switch over and uh, speak with Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> um, 
So can you start out um, briefly telling our listeners a little bit about how you came to live in Mendocino County? Um, well, that takes me back a long ways, Michelle. Um, I met uh, two doctors at, uh, at Wilbur Hot Springs back in about 1972 or three, uh, Peter Barg and Jacques Tenzel. And they were uh, running a clinic uh, in Casper. And they invited me over to work with them and uh, introduced me to people in the community. And that was my uh, introduction to, uh, to Mendocino County and to the, uh, to the North Coast. Um, I had worked earlier in my uh, career uh, in New Hampshire and um, the coast there I found uh, very stimulating, exciting and very beautiful. And this coast here reminded me very much of that, uh, of that northeastern coast, but without the snow. And uh, so I was, uh, I was attracted to the area, but I think I was really most attracted to the people. Mm. I just felt like uh, this was my tribe. These were people who would come here uh, in addition to the locals. Uh, people had come here as part of the Back to the Land movement. And I was part of the Back to the Land movement over at Wilbur Hot Springs. And so it was a natural connection and I felt very much at home and I have ever since. I think that's something that a lot of people feel in, in coming here, that they feel a really strong connection to the community and the people here and the work that they're doing. And I know that that was, you know, back in the original Back to the Land movement. And I think that's kind of happening again now where there's a lot of young people moving here and, and being really excited about what's happening here on the coast and in, in Mendocino County. So as a clinical psychologist, uh, an author, you're also a radio host, Mind Body Health Politics, you've done a lot of research on the healing properties of psychedelics. And today we were going to talk specifically about the healing properties of psilocybin mushrooms. So could you just start off by telling our listeners how you first became aware of psilocybin. Um, I know that you were involved with the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, which was one of the starting points or one of the research points of psychedelic mushrooms back in the 60s. Well, I was, uh, I was teaching at, uh, at the University of Michigan and uh, Leary and Alpert were at Harvard in Michigan and Harvard they were both clinical psychologists also. Uh, Albert, of course, became Ramdas. And um, so there was a lot of, uh, of interchange of communication between Michigan and Harvard. And, uh, and I, I learned about the studies that they were doing uh, with, uh, with mushrooms and with, uh, with LSD. And... Um, I, uh, I, I read their book, uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and uh, in it they describe how if you have difficulty getting LSD, you can eat morning glory seeds. And so uh, I ingested, along with a friend, and we had a couple of people to sit for us, I ingested 40, 400 morning glory seeds and had my first psychedelic experience and uh, it was uh, transformational 
in an extremely positive way. And uh, from there, I began researching uh, psychedelic substances while I was there at Michigan. And uh, of course, uh, the magic mushroom uh, came into view very quickly. And so that's how I, I, uh, I introduced myself to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in the summer of 1967, uh, the summer of love, that I had uh, four months off from teaching at Michigan. And I was invited to spend the summer at the Esalen Institute by Dr. Fritz Perls, who was the founder of Gestalt Therapy. So I moved out to Esalen uh, for that summer. And uh, during that summer, I had some uh, further psychedelic experiences, which uh, just kept my interest going. And um, that, was the, that was the beginning of the journey. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about specifically about the the healing properties of working with psilocybin mushrooms from um, you know your own experience and then also from a, a psych psychological or therapeutic perspective? Well, the um, it, it, it's an interesting story because it's a it's really a political story in that. Our government has misguided the American public for over a half a century about psilocybin, LSD, DMT, ayahuasca, various other psychedelics. And it's been a, a real, a terrible, uh, 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 a terrible, terrible event because by misguiding the public and creating negativity about these medicines, the government has literally deprived untold possibly millions of people of medicines that would help them mm -hmm. and the part of the motivation for this is is control and part of the motivation for this is money because what we have found out in recent years since some research has been allowed to squeak through and and a lot of the research that has been allowed to squeak through is in the book of mine that you referenced, Psychedelic Medicine. Uh, the, the research is very clear that, um, that there's tremendous potential value. And so, for example, uh, the, the research that uh, Dr. Roland Griffiths did at Johns Hopkins University was groundbreaking in that he administered one dose of psilocybin mushrooms uh, to a group of people. They had been tested uh, prior to the administration for depression. So all of these people in the, in the experimental group were, uh, ha had suffered from depression. And they, got the, they were administered the psilocybin along with a protocol of uh, psychotherapy. And one year later, they were retested and the effects were really phenomenal in that they were still uh, suffer, uh, uh, suffering from depression, but much less, some of them hardly at all. And this was after one administration and, and one year later. And you have to compare this to what the uh, pharmaceutical companies offer, which is, uh, 
selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors known as SSRIs, which you have to take an, an, every single day for, for a year. Mm-hmm. So in the Hopkins study, I think 67% of the people were, were, were uh, depression-free a week after treatment, 42% of them were, were in remission three months later from one administration. So you can see how the pharmaceutical companies are very opposed to anything that will cut off their revenue stream. And if you have take the psilocybin once and you get a better result than something you take 365 times, they've got financial difficulty. So they've been one of the forces that have been opposing, uh, allowing Mm -hmm. research. I mean, literally research in this country has been suppressed for for a half a century or more. And at the same time, misguided information has been perpetrated on the public for a half a century or more. And we're, we're only now beginning to come out of it a bit. There's somewhat of a renaissance going on. So I said there were two factors. One is the money, the, the, the pharmaceuticals and the interests that have been a, 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 a oppositional to the a, a research in psychedelic science. And the other is the basic atmosphere of the, of the leaders of the government, which, which has its roots in puritanical America. They're really afraid of anything that's going to free up the consciousness of the act of the average citizen. They want to keep things as they are and and, and maintain uh, what is basically, in my opinion, a, a national slave ship. And I say that because of the of the um, the reprehensible uh, fee structure of salaries for the American worker. I mean, I, I heard a, a congressman recently on television. And he was waving a banner for uh, uplifting the the minimum wage, and it sounded like he was really serious about uplifting the, the the minimum wage. And and what he was talking about was uplifting the minimum wage in certain areas to fifteen dollars an hour and keeping it as low as nine, ten, and eleven dollars an hour. In in his opinion, in areas where it's not needed, and and this is it's farcical. Because even $15 an hour is $30,000 a year. And after taxes, that's barely subsistence. It, and and it, it shouldn't be acceptable. So you, you have, on the one hand, the politicians who, who are motivated to, to keep people numb, to keep people in a state of, of desperation, a fear of losing their jobs so that they'll settle for for lower amounts of money, they don't want the people to wake up, and these psychedelic medicines are liable to wake them up. And then you have the pharmaceutical companies who want to keep making money by selling the people these medicines that you have to take every day. Those two forces together have been extremely powerful at, at stopping psychedelic science. And and it's been of me as a as a, as a trained scientist, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's been very painful, really, uh, to to think that my great country has been suppressing science for such a long period of time. And I'm really hoping we're starting to come out of it now. We'll see. 
you know, like you talked about previously, there was being research done, uh, there were being studies done working with people with anxiety and depression. And as you said, there is somewhat of a renaissance happening now where they are starting to work with this again. Can you talk a little bit about maybe your own personal experience or more a little bit more about the research of these other scientists and doctors of what the effects have been working with psilocybin. I know that microdosing is something that many people have begun experimenting with as a tool to manage anxiety and depression. And that's something that um, I know that you've talked about before. Well, microdosing, Michelle, is fascinating because psychedelics, when taken in full dose, are very powerful. They require um, special circumstances. Uh, you have to prepare. You you need a a, a well trained guide, a person to be with you, very well trained. You have to go th- take it in in a proper protocol, as what we call set and setting, meaning where you take the medicine is very important, and your mental set going into it is important. And then there needs to be an integration period after the experience. So that's all true for a standard dose, be it of psilocybin or LSD. Uh, But when it comes to microdosing, the the effect is is hardly even noticeable, if noticeable at all. And I think the best way to describe the effect of microdosing uh, is to is to listen to the title of the book by Ayelet Waldman, and uh, a lawyer who suffered from bipolar disorder for twenty years, took every medicine in the pharmacopoeia until she came across, and, and with no good result for her bipolar, uh, and then uh, came upon microdosing, and had a, a, a wonderful, a marvelous effect. The name of Violet's book is called A Really Good Day. And the reason she in, uh, titled it that is because after she microdosed, at the end of the day, she said to her husband, Michael, I, I just realized I had a really good day. Mm. And that's what microdosing is about. You don't even realize you're on the microdose until you either introspect or retrospect and realize that your day had been brighter and and your day had been uplifting. So, and without any hallucinations, without any uh, psychoactive, big psychoactive effects. So what we really have in, in microdosing with psilocybin and LSD is, you, you might say it's almost revolutionary because it has the power to uplift the human spirit without the person feeling like they're on anything whatsoever and being able to safely do everything. Go to work, drive a car, study, do research. There's nothing you can't do because you're, quote, regular. You're not, quote, altered. So microdosing is really a big event uh, in science and in medicine, and it's going to be fascinating to see what the future will bring as more and more people uh, uh, enter into this world. 
Yeah, and also it comes without this uh, addiction, you know, that with the SSRIs, your body basically becomes addicted to it. Whereas um, with psilocybin microdosing or with LSD, you're not becoming physically addicted to it. Yes, actually, Michelle, it, it, it's even better than that. Whereas with the SSRIs, as you pointed out, you do become addicted and your neurotransmitters get affected. And unfortunately, what happens is your neurotransmitters get so affected by the SSRIs that when you try to stop them, you have withdrawal. But most people don't understand and haven't been taught by their doctors that there's going to be this serious withdrawal as your neurotransmitters attempt to rebalance. So what they think is happening when they go through these emotional upheavals is that their symptoms are coming back. And they say to themselves, oh my gosh, my symptoms are coming back. I better go back on these SSRIs. Mm -hmm. What they don't realize is the symptoms that they're feeling are the SSRIs in withdrawal. And so it, it's, it's a very awkward and complicated situation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, with microdosing, you can't get addicted because what happens is you use up some of your neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin. And so there's no effect. And so the protocol for a person who wants to go on a regular regimen for a period of time of microdosing is you take it and then you have to take at least two days off mm -hmm. in order for your system to rebuild and then you can take it again. So there's almost a built, there is a built-in uh, protection. Uh, against uh, addiction it's it's really fascinating and i know there's you know in addition to yourself who who wrote um a book about psychedelic medicine which we're going to go into in a moment but there's you know michael pollan came out with how to change your mind uh paul stamets is doing a lot of work up in in um olympia washington and so it is becoming much more of a mainstream um, a mainstream topic that people are becoming more educated about. And in 2017, you published a book called uh, Psychedelic Medicine, in which you speak with leaders in the field of psychedelics. Could you tell us a little bit more about your book and maybe specifically to the people that you took, that you spoke with in regards to psilocybin? Well, yes, um, because I've been, you know, in the field so long, uh, I know uh, most of the uh, scientists in the country who have courageously uh, kept knocking on the doors of the government in hope of being able to be allowed a, a license to do a little research. And so I, I, I just called upon uh, these people who were acquaintances and friends, such as Dennis McKenna, Stanislav Groff, Rick Dobland, Jim Fadiman, uh, Julie Holland, uh, Amanda Fielding, uh, uh, Dave Nichols. Dave Nichols is the foremost LSD scientist on the planet, uh, and 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 others. I oh, I mentioned of course Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins. Uh, in the book, I have Michael Midhoffer, Dr. Midhoffer, who did the uh, original work on MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and uh, Phil Wolfson 
on MDMA also. And Phil Wolfson's done a lot of work with ketamine. Ketamine is legal in, in California. So there's actually ket ketamine um, uh, clinics going on. Uh, there's a wonderful clinic in the East Bay called the Sage Institute. Uh, that's uh, the first, the country's first low fee psychedelic psychotherapy institute. Wow. First in the country, low fee for indigenous people. It's called the Sage Institute. It's worth checking out. Founded by Dr. Uh, uh, Genesee Herzberg and her husband, Dr. Jason Butler. And they're able to do this because the uh, medicine that they're using is ketamine. And ketamine is uh, fully legal as a medicine in California. Uh, and interestingly enough, I can share with you that during the pandemic, they continued their treatment by um, having the people come to the clinic, pick up their medicine, uh, take it home, and then they scheduled the uh, protocol for the administration of the uh, ketamine and the experience on the Zoom, just like we're Zooming now. And so the patient would be at home sitting in front of their screen and the, the doctor was in the office and they maintained their, their psychedelic uh, psychotherapy treatment, which I think was really, uh, you know, nothing short of phenomenal and, uh, because of our, you know, the ability now technologically. So they didn't miss a beat on that. So th this is a way of saying, you know, that progress is being made uh, but we have a long way to go because the government is, uh, is, is very tight. There's a lot of fear uh, in government leaders of these substances, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, and, and it's going to be a slog. We, we, we haven't even gotten to the point yet where marijuana is uh, federally uh, legal. And look at all the problems that's causing because marijuana has many medicinal uh, 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 potentials, and yet at the same time, people in the marijuana uh, business uh, can't even open a bank account because all bank accounts are connected to the federal government. And since marijuana is illegal federally, they're not allowed to take money from businesses that are in the marijuana business. Uh, just as one of the many complications of how the government is suppressing uh, the furtherment of these medicines. Very unfortunate. Well, with uh, psilocybin becoming legal in Oregon, that's a, a very big deal. Have you had experience or do you know anyone who's working with it in Oregon? Uh, what I can tell you is it's, it's been legalized in Oregon. No, I don't know people up there, but it's been also legal in Oakland and in Denver, Colorado. Okay. And it is being used uh, psychotherapeutically uh, to a certain extent. In, in Oakland and in Denver, Colorado. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there are any big research programs going on. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but research has also gone on, for example, in England, uh, Amanda Fielding, uh, who's known for her groundbreaking work with digital imaging of the brain on LSD, Amanda Fielding has also done work and had success and published the success um, through the Beckley Foundation in England. By the way, Amanda also teamed up with 
with uh, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, and they did some groundbreaking research with psilocybin and nicotine cessation and had tremendous success with that. And, and that's, it's really gotten very little publicity. I mean, the mainstream press has gone back and forth. I mean, more recently, they're, they're tell, giving the public a little more information uh, than they have in the past. But th this work on, on, uh, on nicotine uh, cessation using psilocybin really deserves a lot more attention because, you know, as we all know, we still have over 25 million uh, cigarette smokers in the United States uh, killing approximately a thousand people a day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the numbers are just, Michelle, they're just, they're astronomical. Uh, you it, know. It, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but wasn't psilocybin also used initially, they were doing studies to treat alcoholism. Psilocybin and LSD were both being used successfully uh, to, in this research on it from before LSD was made illegal, if you can believe it, in 1967. So that's over 50 years ago. Over 50 years, continuous leaking of a little research here and there showing positive medicinal effects, and it's still illegal. And yes, there was success with alcoholism. And alcoholism is a major problem in this country. Uh, killing you know hundreds of thousands of people it's it's uh, it's 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 huge mm -hmm. so the, these are these are areas where the public will benefit immensely once we're able to turn this this juggernaut of suppression around right. and i'm hoping to live to see it in addition to the book that you wrote, which is called Psychedelic Medicine, you also have a radio show, um, Mind Body Health Politics, where you speak with a lot of people, um, doctors, scientists, people in the field who are doing this research um, on psychedelics. And then you also interview a lot of locals from, from Mendocino County. So how can our listeners find your book, hear your podcast? Oh, thanks, Michelle. Um, well, if you go to my website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, uh, all my programs are archived. And for those of you who have interests other than the whole, the program isn't just about psychedelic medicine. I have done a lengthy series on that. In fact, I, when I was with KZYX, I did the longest series on, on psychedelic medicine that has ever been done in the United States. And I, mm. I'm, I'm really happy with that. And that, and that is part of what led to my book. Um, so if they go to that website, but there are other interesting things on the website as well, such as recently uh, I interviewed Dr. Wallace Nichols, who's the world's foremost authority on water. Mm -hmm. And you wanna hear what he has to say about water. Interviewed Charles Durrett, an architect who's a specialist in tiny homes mm -hmm. and what he's doing with building tiny homes around the United States for low-income people, wow. uh, because one one of my big one of my big uh, interests and passions, Michelle, is this 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 terribly painful socioeconomic stratification that's been going on 
in this country uh, since uh, President Nixon's uh, uh, presidency. And, and we all know about you know, what's related to the upper 1%, but what a lot of people don't know is how the upper one and then the upper 10% are taking more and more of the entire pie, leaving less and less for the middle and lower classes in this country and really, really uh, pushing them down. And, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, something that, that if we don't do something about, we're gonna, see, uh, we're gonna see some kind of a revolution or a civil war. Because as I learned in my first class in graduate school, uh, 110 years ago, there's only a certain amount that you can push down the middle and lower classes economically. And at a certain point, you can create such desperation that there is an uprising. And I'm just, you know, hoping as many others are that we'll be able to do something to level the socioeconomic playing field. You know, that ties back into kind of what we were talking about with Lama and Matt with, you know, the biointensive and people growing their own food. And I know that's a, a small part of it, but it is, uh, you know, kind of coming full circle how these are all interconnected and the methods that they're using, whether growing large quantities of food in a small space and, and using these methods to provide food not, not only for themselves, but other people. So if anyone is interested in, in hearing that and learning more, you can go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. That's Dr. Richard Lewis Miller's website. And you can also follow him on Instagram at mindbodyhealthpolitics. And Dr. Miller, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm sure that we could easily speak for uh, another hour about all this. It's very fascinating. And if you'd like to learn more about it, you can pick up uh, Dr. Miller's book, Psychedelic Medicine. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you for your service to our community. I know that you're a volunteer. You don't get paid for it. And you're doing this for the benefit of all of us. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity to speak with amazing uh, people in the community. So thank you again for taking the time to be on. And to our listeners, you've been listening to Putting Down Roots on KZYX. And I've been talking about mushrooms with my guests, Lama and Matthew, owners of the Forest People in Boonville, and Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, who is a clinical psychologist, radio host, and author based here in Fort Bragg. Thank you again to our guests for joining. It's been wonderful to learn more about the work you're all doing to bring life to our community. And you can join me on August 5th at 3 p.m. for our next show. If you want to hear the show from today, please check out kzyx.org and go to the jukebox page. And you can also find KZYX on Spotify under KZYX Public Affairs. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.